Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. The Sign of the Broken Sword. The thousand arms of the forest were gray, and its million fingers silver. In a sky of dark green-blue-like slate, the stars were bleak and brilliant like splintered ice. All that thickly wooded and sparsely tenanted countryside was stiff with a bitter and brittle frost. The black hollows between the trunks of the trees looked like bottomless black caverns of that Scandinavian hell, a hell of incalculable cold. Even the square stone tower of the church looked northern to the point of heathenry, as if it were some barbaric tower among the sea rocks of Iceland. It was a queer night for anyone to explore a churchyard, but, on the other hand, perhaps it was worth exploring. It rose abruptly out of the ashen wastes of forest, in a sort of hump or shoulder of green turf that looked gray in the starlight. Most of the graves were on a slant, and the path leading up to the church was as steep as a staircase. On the top of the hill, in the one flat and prominent place, was the monument for which the place was famous. It contrasted strangely with the featureless graves all round, for it was the work of one of the greatest sculptors of modern Europe. And yet his fame was at once forgotten in the fame of the man whose image he had made. It showed, by touches of the small silver pencil of starlight, the massive metal figure of a soldier recumbent, the strong hands sealed in an everlasting worship, the great head pillowed upon a gun. The venerable face was bearded, or rather whiskered, in the old, heavy Colonel Newcomb fashion. The uniform, though suggested with a few strokes of simplicity, was that of modern war. By his right side lay a sword, of which the tip was broken off. On the left side lay a Bible. On glowing summer afternoons, Wagonettes came full of Americans and cultured suburbans to see the sepulchre, but even then they felt the vast forest land, with its one dumpy dome of churchyard and church, as a place oddly dumb and neglected. In this freezing darkness of midwinter, 
one would think he might be left alone with the stars. Nevertheless, in the stillness of those stiff woods, a wooden gate creaked, and two dim figures dressed in black climbed up the little path to the tomb. So faint was that frigid starlight that nothing could have been traced about them except that while they both wore black, one man was enormously big, and the other, perhaps by contrast, almost startlingly small. They went up to the great graven tomb of the historic warrior, and stood for a few minutes staring at it. There was no human, perhaps no living thing, for a wide circle, and a morbid fancy might well have wondered if they were human themselves. In any case, the beginning of their conversation might have seemed strange. After the first silence, the small man said to the other, Where does a wise man hide a pebble? And the tall man answered in a low voice, On the beach. The small man nodded, and after a short silence said, Where does a wise man hide a leaf? And the other answered, In the forest. There was another stillness, and then the tall man resumed. Do you mean that when a wise man has to hide a real diamond, he has been known to hide it among sham ones? No, no, said the little man with a laugh. We will let bygones be bygones. He stamped his cold feet for a second or two, and then said, I'm not thinking of that at all, but of something else, something rather peculiar. Just strike a match, will you? The big man fumbled in his pocket, and soon a scratch and a flare painted gold the whole flat side of the monument. On it was cut in black letters the well-known words which so many Americans had reverently read. Sacred to the memory of General Sir Arthur St. Clair, hero and martyr, who always vanquished his enemies and always spared them, and was treacherously slain by them at last. May God, in whom he trusted, both reward and revenge him. The match burnt the big man's fingers, blackened, and dropped. He was about to strike another, but his small companion stopped him. That's all right, Flambeau, old man. I saw what I wanted. Or rather, I didn't see what I didn't want. And now we must walk a mile and a half along the road to the next inn, and I will try to tell you all about it. For heaven knows a man should have a fire and ale when he dares tell such a story. They descended the precipitous path, they relatched the rusty gate, and set off at a stamping, ringing walk down the frozen forest road. They had gone a full quarter of a mile before the smaller man spoke again. He said, Yes, the wise man hides a pebble on the beach. But what does he do if there is no beach? Do you know anything of that great St. Clair trouble? I know nothing about English generals, Father Brown, answered the large man, laughing. Though a little about English policemen. 
I only know that you have dragged me a precious long dance to all the shrines of this fellow, whoever he is. One would think he got buried in six different places. I've seen a memorial to General St. Clair in Westminster Abbey. I've seen a ramping equestrian statue of General St. Clair on the embankment. I've seen a medallion of St. Clair in the street he was born in, and another in the street he lived in. And now you drag me after dark to his coffin in the village churchyard. I am beginning to be a bit tired of his magnificent personality, especially as I don't in the least know who he was. What are you hunting for in all these crypts and effigies? I'm only looking for one word, said Father Brown, a word that isn't there. Well, asked Flambeau, are you going to tell me anything about it? I must divide it into two parts, remarked the priest. First, there is what everybody knows, and then there is what I know. Now, what everybody knows is short and plain enough. It is also entirely wrong. Right you are, said the big man called Flambeau cheerfully. Let's begin at the wrong end. Let's begin with what everybody knows, which isn't true. If it's not wholly untrue, it is at least very inadequate, continued Brown. For in point of fact, all that the public knows amounts precisely to this. The public knows that Arthur St. Clair was a great and successful English general. It knows that after splendid yet careful campaigns both in India and Africa, he was in command against Brazil when the great Brazilian patriot Olivier issued his ultimatum. It knows that on that occasion St. Clair, with a very small force, attacked Olivier with a very large one, and was captured after heroic resistance. And it knows that after his capture, and to the abhorrence of the civilized world, St. Clair was hanged on the nearest tree. He was found swinging there after the Brazilians had retired, with his broken sword hung round his neck. And that popular story is untrue? suggested Flambeau. No, said his friend quietly. That story is quite true, so far as it goes. Well, I think it goes far enough, said Flambeau. But if the popular story is true, what is the mystery? They had passed many hundreds of grey and ghostly trees before the little priest answered. Then he bit his finger reflectively and said, Why, the mystery is a mystery of psychology. Or, rather, it is the mystery of two psychologies. In that Brazilian business, two of the most famous men in modern history acted flat against their characters. Mind you, Olivier and St. Clair were both heroes. The old thing, and no mistake, it was like the fight between Hector and Achilles. Now, what would you say to an affair in which Achilles was timid and Hector was treacherous? Go on said the large man impatiently, as the other bit his finger again. Sir Arthur St. Clair was a soldier of the old religious type, the type that saved us during the mutiny, 
continued Brown. He was always more for duty than for dash, and with all his personal courage was decidedly a prudent commander, particularly indignant at any needless waste of soldiers. Yet in this last battle he attempted something that a baby could see was absurd. One need not be a strategist to see it was as wild as wind, just as one need not be a strategist to keep out of the way of a motor bus. Well, that is the first mystery. What had become of the English general's head? The second riddle is, what had become of the Brazilian general's heart? President Olivier might be called a visionary or a nuisance, but even his enemies admitted that he was magnanimous to the point of knight errantry. Almost every other prisoner he had ever captured had been set free or even loaded with benefits. Men who had really wronged him came away touched by his simplicity and sweetness. Why the deuce should he diabolically revenge himself only once in his life, and that for the one particular blow that could not have hurt him? Well, there you have it. One of the wisest men in the world acted like an idiot for no reason. One of the best men in the world acted like a fiend for no reason. That's the long and the short of it, and I leave it to you, my boy. No, you don't, said the other with a snort. I leave it to you, and you jolly well tell me all about it. Well, resumed Father Brown, it's not fair to say that the public impression is just what I've said, without adding that two things have happened since. I can't say they throw a new light, for nobody can make sense of them. But they threw a new kind of darkness. They threw the darkness in new directions. The first was this. The family physician of the St. Clairs quarreled with that family and began publishing a violent series of articles in which he said that the late general was a religious maniac. But as far as the tale went, this seemed to mean little more than a religious man. Anyhow, the story fizzled out. Everyone knew, of course, that St. Clair had some of the eccentricities of Puritan piety. The second incident was much more arresting. In the luckless and unsupported regiment which made that rash attempt at the Black River, there was a certain Captain Keith, who was at that time engaged to St. Clair's daughter, and who afterwards married her. He was one of those who were captured by Olivier, and, like all the rest except the general, appears to have been bounteously treated and promptly set free. Some twenty years afterwards this man, then Lieutenant Colonel Keith, published a sort of autobiography called A British Officer in Burma and Brazil. In the place where the reader looks eagerly for some account of the mystery of St. Clair's disaster may be found the following words. Everywhere else in this book I have narrated things exactly as they occurred, holding, as I do, the old-fashioned opinion that the glory of England is old enough to take care of itself. The exception I shall make is in this matter of the defeat by the Black River. And my reasons, though private, 
are honorable and compelling. I will, however, add this in justice to the memories of two distinguished men. General St. Clair has been accused of incapacity on this occasion. I can at least testify that this action, properly understood, was one of the most brilliant and sagacious of his life. President Olivier, by similar report, is charged with savage injustice. I think it due to the honor of an enemy to say that he acted on this occasion with even more than his characteristic good feeling. To put the matter popularly, I can assure my countrymen that St. Clair was by no means such a fool, nor Olivier such a brute as he looked. This is all I have to say, nor shall any earthly consideration induce me to add a word to it. A large frozen moon, like a lustrous snowball, began to show through the tangle of twigs in front of them, and by its light the narrator had been able to refresh his memory of Captain Keith's text from a scrap of printed paper. As he folded it up and put it back in his pocket, Flambeau threw up his hand with a French gesture. "'Wait a bit, wait a bit,' he cried excitedly. "'I believe I can guess it at the first go.' He strode on, breathing hard, his black head and bull neck forward, like a man winning a walking race. The little priest, amused and interested, had some trouble in trotting beside him. Just before them the trees fell back a little to left and right, and the road swept downwards across a clear, moonlit valley, till it dived again like a rabbit into the wall of another wood. The entrance to the farther forest looked small and round, like the black hole of a remote railway tunnel. But it was within some hundred yards, and gaped like a cavern, before Flambeau spoke again. "'I've got it!' he cried at last, slapping his thigh with his great hand. Four minutes thinking, and I can tell your whole story myself.' "'All right,' assented his friend. "'You tell it.' Flambeau lifted his head, but lowered his voice. "'General Sir Arthur St. Clair,' he said, "'came of a family in which madness was hereditary, "'and his whole aim was to keep this from his daughter, "'and even, if possible, from his future son-in-law. "'Rightly or wrongly, he thought the final collapse was close "'and resolved on suicide. "'Yet ordinary suicide would blazon the very idea he dreaded.' As the campaign approached, the clouds came thicker on his brain, and at last in a mad moment he sacrificed his public duty to his private. He rushed rashly into battle, hoping to fall by the first shot. When he found that he had only attained capture and discredit, the sealed bomb in his brain burst, and he broke his own sword and hanged himself. He stared firmly at the gray façade of forest in front of him, with the one black gap in it, like the mouth of the grave, into which their path plunged. Perhaps something menacing in the road, thus suddenly swallowed, reinforced his vivid vision of the tragedy, for he shuddered. A horrid story, 
he said. A horrid story, repeated the priest with bent head. But not the real story. Then he threw back his head with a sort of despair and cried, Oh, I wish it had been. The tall flambeau faced round and stared at him. Yours is a clean story, cried Father Brown, deeply moved. A sweet, pure, honest story, as open and white as that moon. Madness and despair are innocent enough. There are worse things, Flambeau. Flambeau looked up wildly at the moon thus invoked, and from where he stood, one black tree bough curved across it exactly like a devil's horn. Father, father, cried Flambeau with the French gesture, and stepping yet more rapidly forward. Do you mean it was worse than that? Worse than that, said Paul, like a grave echo. And they plunged into the black cloister of the woodland, which ran by them in a dim tapestry of trunks, like one of the dark corridors in a dream. They were soon in the most secret entrails of the wood, and felt close about them foliage that they could not see, when the priest said again, Where does a wise man hide a leaf? In the forest. But what does he do if there is no forest? Well, well, cried Flambeau irritably, what does he do? He grows a forest to hide it in, said the priest in an obscure voice. A fearful sin. Look here, cried his friend impatiently, for the dark wood and the dark saying got a little on his nerves. Will you tell me this story or not? What other evidence is there to go on? There are three more bits of evidence, said the other, that I have dug up in holes and corners, and I will give them in logical rather than chronological order. First of all, of course, our authority for the issue and event of the battle is in Olivier's own dispatches, which are lucid enough. He was entrenched with two or three regiments on the heights that swept down to the Black River, on the other side of which was lower and more marshy ground. Beyond this again was gently rising country, on which was the first English outpost, supported by others which lay, however, considerably in its rear. The British forces as a whole were greatly superior in numbers, but this particular regiment was just far enough from its base to make Olivier consider the project of crossing the river to cut it off. By sunset, however, he had decided to retain his own position, which was a specially strong one. At daybreak next morning, he was thunderstruck to see that this stray handful of English, entirely unsupported from their rear, had flung themselves across the river, half by a bridge to the right, and the other half by a ford higher up, and were massed upon the marshy bank below him. That they should attempt an attack with such numbers against such a position was incredible enough, but Olivier noticed something yet more extraordinary. For instead of attempting to seize more solid ground, this mad regiment, having put the river in its rear, 
by one wild charge, did nothing more but stuck there in the mire like flies in a treacle. Needless to say, the Brazilians blew great gaps in them with artillery, which they could only return with spirited but lessening rifle fire. Yet they never broke, and Olivier's curt account ends with a strong tribute of admiration for the mystic valor of these imbeciles. Our line then advanced finally, writes Olivier, and drove them into the river. We captured General St. Clair himself and several other officers. The colonel and the major had both fallen in the battle. I cannot resist saying that few finer sights can have been seen in history than the last stand of this extraordinary regiment. Wounded officers picking up the rifles of dead soldiers, and the general himself facing us on horseback, bareheaded, and with a broken sword. On what happened to the general afterwards, Olivier is as silent as Captain Keith. Well, grunted Flambeau, get on to the next bit of evidence. The next evidence, said Father Brown, took some time to find, but it will not take long to tell. I found at last in an almshouse down in the Lincolnshire Fens an old soldier who not only was wounded at the Black River, but had actually knelt beside the colonel of the regiment when he died. This latter was a certain Colonel Clancy, a big bull of an Irishman, and it would seem that he died almost as much of rage as of bullets. He, at any rate, was not responsible for that ridiculous raid. It must have been imposed on him by the general. His last edifying words, according to my informant, were these. And there goes the damned old donkey with the end of his sword knocked off. I wish it was his head. You will remark that everyone seems to have noticed this detail about the broken sword blade, though most people regard it somewhat more reverently than did the late Colonel Clancy. And now for the third fragment. Their path through the woodland began to go upward, and the speaker paused a little for breath before he went on. Then he continued in the same business-like tone. Only a month or two ago, a certain Brazilian official died in England, having quarreled with Olivier and left his country. He was a well-known figure both here and on the continent, a Spaniard named Espado. I knew him myself, a yellow-faced old dandy with a hooked nose. For various private reasons, I had permission to see the documents he had left. He was a Catholic, of course, and I had been with him towards the end. There was nothing of his that lit up any corner of the Black St. Clair business, except five or six common exercise books filled with the diary of some English soldier. I can only suppose that it was found by the Brazilians on one of those that fell. Anyhow, it stopped abruptly the night before the battle. But the account of that last day in the poor fellow's life was certainly worth reading. I have it on me, but it's too dark to read it here, and I will give you a resume. The first part of that entry is full of jokes, evidently flung about among the men, about somebody called the Vulture. 
it does not seem as if this person, whoever he was, was one of themselves, nor even an Englishman. Neither is he exactly spoken of as one of the enemy. It sounds rather as if he were some local go-between and non-combatant, perhaps a guide or a journalist. He has been closeted with old Colonel Clancy, but is more often seen talking to the Major. Indeed, the Major is somewhat prominent in this soldier's narrative, a lean, dark-haired man, apparently, of the name of Murray, a North of Ireland man, and a Puritan. There are continual jests about the contrast between this Ulsterman's austerity and the conviviality of Colonel Clancy. There is also some joke about the vulture wearing bright-colored clothes. But all these levities are scattered by what may well be called the note of a bugle. Behind the English camp, and almost parallel to the river, ran one of the few great roads of that district. Westward, the road curved round towards the river, which it crossed by the bridge before mentioned. To the east, the road swept backwards into the wilds, and some two miles along it was the next English outpost. From this direction, there came along the road that evening a glitter and clatter of light cavalry, in which even the simple diarist could recognize with astonishment the general with his staff. He rode the great white horse which you have seen so often in illustrated papers and academy pictures, and you may be sure that the salute they gave him was not merely ceremonial. He, at least, wasted no time on ceremony, but, springing from his saddle immediately, mixed with the group of officers, and fell into emphatic, though confidential speech. What struck our friend the diarist most was his special disposition to discuss matters with Major Murray. But, indeed, such a selection, so long as it was not marked, was in no way unnatural. The two men were made for sympathy. They were men who read their Bibles. They were both the old evangelical type of officer. However this may be, it is certain that when the general mounted again, he was still talking earnestly to Murray, and that as he walked his horse slowly down the road towards the river, the tall Ulsterman still walked by his bridle rein in earnest debate. The soldiers watched the two until they vanished behind a clump of trees where the road turned towards the river. The colonel had gone back to his tent and the men to their pickets. The man with the diary lingered for another four minutes and saw a marvelous sight. The great white horse which had marched slowly down the road, as it had marched in so many processions, flew back, galloping up the road towards them as if it were mad to win a race. At first they thought it had run away with the man on its back, but they soon saw that the general, a fine rider, was himself urging it to full speed. Horse and man swept up to them like a whirlwind, and then, reining up the reeling charger, the general turned on them a face like flame, and called for the colonel like the trumpet that wakes the dead. I conceive that all the earthquake events of that catastrophe tumbled on top of each other rather like lumber in the minds of men such as our friend with the diary. 
with the dazed excitement of a dream, they found themselves falling, literally falling, into their ranks, and learned that an attack was to be led at once across the river. The general and the major, it was said, had found out something at the bridge, and there was only just time to strike for life. The major had gone back at once to call up the reserve along the road behind. It was doubtful if even with that prompt appeal help could reach them in time. But they must pass the stream that night and seize the heights by morning. It is with the very stir and throb of that romantic nocturnal march that the diary suddenly ends. Father Brown had mounted ahead, for the woodland path grew smaller, steeper, and more twisted, till they felt as if they were ascending a winding staircase. The priest's voice came from above out of the darkness. There was one other little and enormous thing. When the general urged them to their chivalric charge, he half drew his sword from the scabbard, and then, as if ashamed of such melodrama, thrust it back again. The sword again, you see. A half-light broke through the network of boughs above them, flinging the ghost of a net about their feet, for they were mounting again to the faint luminosity of the naked night. Flambeau felt truth all round him as an atmosphere, but not as an idea. He answered with bewildered brain, Well, what's the matter with the sword? Officers generally have swords, don't they? They are not often mentioned in modern war, said the other dispassionately, but in this affair one falls over the blessed sword everywhere. Well, what is there in that? growled Flambeau. It was a two-pence colored sort of incident, the old man's blade breaking in his last battle. Anyone might bet the papers would get hold of it, as they have. On all these tombs and things it's shown broken at the point. I hope you haven't dragged me through this polar expedition, merely because two men with an eye for a picture saw St. Clair's broken sword. No, cried Father Brown, with a sharp voice like a pistol shot. But who saw his unbroken sword? What do you mean? cried the other, and stood still under the stars. They had come abruptly out of the gray gates of the wood. I say, who saw his unbroken sword? repeated Father Brown obstinately. Not the writer of the diary, anyhow. The general sheathed it in time. Flambeau looked about him in the moonlight, as a man struck blind might look in the sun, and his friend went on, for the first time with eagerness. Flambeau, he cried, I cannot prove it, even after hunting through the tombs, but I am sure of it. Let me add just one more tiny fact that tips the whole thing over. The colonel, by a strange chance, was one of the first struck by a bullet. He was struck long before the troops came to close quarters. But he saw St. Clair's sword broken. Why was it broken? How was it broken? My friend, it was broken before the battle. Oh, said his friend with a sort of forlorn jocularity, and pray where is the other piece? 
I can tell you, said the priest promptly. In the northeast corner of the cemetery of the Protestant Cathedral at Belfast. Indeed, inquired the other. Have you looked for it? I couldn't, replied Brown, with frank regret. There's a great marble monument on top of it, a monument to the heroic Major Murray, who fell fighting gloriously at the famous Battle of the Black River. Flambeau seemed suddenly galvanized into existence. "'You mean,' he cried hoarsely, "'that General St. Clair hated Murray "'and murdered him on the field of battle because—' "'You are still full of good and pure thoughts,' said the other. "'It was worse than that.' "'Well,' said the large man, "'my stock of evil imagination is used up.' The priest seemed really doubtful where to begin, and at last he said again, "'Where would the wise man hide a leaf? In the forest.' The other did not answer. "'If there were no forest, he would make a forest. And if he wished to hide a dead leaf, he would make a dead forest.' There was still no reply, and the priest added, still more mildly and quietly, and if a man had to hide a dead body, he would make a field of dead bodies to hide it in. Flambeau began to stamp forward with an intolerance of delay in time or space, but Father Brown went on as if he were continuing the last sentence. Sir Arthur St. Clair, as I have already said, was a man who read his Bible. That was what was the matter with him, when will people understand that it is useless for a man to read his Bible unless he also reads everybody else's Bible? A printer reads a Bible for misprints. A Mormon reads his Bible and finds polygamy. A Christian scientist reads his and finds we have no arms and legs. St. Clair was an old Anglo-Indian Protestant soldier. Now, just think what that might mean and for heaven's sake don't cant about it. It might mean a man physically formidable, living under a tropic sun in an oriental society, and soaking himself without sense or guidance in an oriental book. Of course, he read the Old Testament rather than the New. Of course, he found in the Old Testament anything that he wanted, lust, tyranny, treason, Oh, I dare say he was honest, as you call it. But what is the good of a man being honest in his worship of dishonesty? In each of the hot and secret countries to which the man went, he kept a harem, he tortured witnesses, he amassed shameful gold. But certainly he would have said with steady eyes that he did it to the glory of the Lord. My own theology is sufficiently expressed by asking, which Lord? Anyhow, there is this about such evil, that it opens door after door in hell, and always into smaller and smaller chambers. This is the real case against crime, that a man does not become wilder and wilder, but only meaner and meaner. St. Clair was soon suffocated by difficulties of bribery and blackmail, 
and needed more and more cash. And by the time of the Battle of the Black River, he had fallen from world to world to that place which Dante makes the lowest floor of the universe. "'What do you mean?' asked his friend again. "'I mean that,' retorted the cleric, and suddenly pointed at a puddle sealed with ice that shone in the moon. "'Do you remember whom Dante put in that last circle of ice?' "'The traitors,' said Flambeau, and shuddered. As he looked around at the inhuman landscape of trees, with taunting and almost obscene outlines, he could almost fancy he was Dante, and the priest with the rivulet of a voice was, indeed, a Virgil leading him through a land of eternal sins. The voice went on. Olivier, as you know, was quixotic, and would not permit a secret service and spies. The thing, however, was done, like many other things, behind his back. It was managed by my old friend Espado. He was the bright-clad fop, whose hook nose got him called the vulture. Posing as a sort of philanthropist at the front, he felt his way through the English army, and at last got his fingers on its one corrupt man, please God, and that man at the top. St. Clair was in foul need of money, and mountains of it. The discredited family doctor was threatening those extraordinary exposures that afterwards began and were broken off. Tales of monstrous and prehistoric things in Park Lane. Things done by an English evangelist that smelt like human sacrifice and hordes of slaves. Money was wanted, too, for his daughter's dowry, for to him the fame of wealth was as sweet as wealth itself. He snapped the last thread, whispered the word to Brazil, and wealth poured in from the enemies of England. But another man had talked to Espado the Vulture as well as he. Somehow the dark, grim young major from Ulster had guessed the hideous truth, and when they walked slowly together down that road towards the bridge, Murray was telling the general that he must resign instantly, or be court-martialed and shot. The general temporized with him till they came to the fringe of tropic trees by the bridge, and there by the singing river and the sunlit palms, for I can see the picture, the general drew his saber and plunged it through the body of the major. The wintry road curved over a ridge in cutting frost with cruel black shapes of bush and thicket, but Flambeau fancied that he saw beyond it faintly the edge of an aureole that was not starlight and moonlight, but some fire such as is made by men. He watched it as the tale drew to its close. St. Clair was a hellhound, but he was a hound of breed. Never, I'll swear, was he so lucid and so strong as when poor Murray lay a cold lump at his feet. Never in all his triumphs, as Captain Keith said truly, was the great man so great as he was in this last world-despised defeat. He looked coolly at his weapon to wipe off the blood. He saw the point he had planted between his victim's shoulders 
had broken off in the body. He saw quite calmly, as through a club windowpane, all that must follow. He saw that men must find the unaccountable corpse, must extract the unaccountable sword point, must notice the unaccountable broken sword, or absence of sword. He had killed, but not silenced. But his imperious intellect rose against the facer. There was one way yet. He could make the corpse less accountable. He could create a hill of corpses to cover this one. In twenty minutes, eight hundred English soldiers were marching down to their death. The warmer glow behind the black winter wood grew richer and brighter, and Flambeau strode on to reach it. Father Brown also quickened his stride, but he seemed merely absorbed in his tale. Such was the valor of that English thousand, and such the genius of their commander, that if they had at once attacked the hill, even their mad march might have met some luck. But the evil mind that played with them like pawns had other aims and reasons. They must remain in the marshes by the bridge, at least till British corpses could be a common sight there. Then for the last grand scene, the silver-haired soldier saint would give up his shattered sword to save further slaughter. Oh, it was well organized for an impromptu. But I think, I cannot prove, I think that it was while they stuck there in the bloody mire that someone doubted, and someone guessed. He was mute a moment, and then said, There is a voice from nowhere that tells me the man who guessed was the lover, the man to wed the old man's child. But what about Olivier and the hanging? asked Flambeau. Olivier, partly from chivalry, partly from policy, seldom encumbered his march with captives, explained the narrator. He released everybody in most cases. He released everybody in this case. Everybody but the general, said the tall man. Everybody, said the priest. Flambeau knit his black brows. I don't grasp it all yet, he said. There is another picture, Flambeau, said Brown, in his more mystical undertone. I can't prove it, but I can do more. I can see it. There is a camp breaking up on the bare, torrid hills at morning, and Brazilian uniforms massed in blocks and columns to march. There is the red shirt and long black beard of Olivier, which blows as he stands, his broad-brimmed hat in his hand. He is saying farewell to the great enemy he is setting free, the simple, snow-headed English veteran, who thanks him in the name of his men. The English remnant stand behind at attention. Behind them are stores and vehicles for the retreat. The drums roll, the Brazilians are moving, the English are still like statues. So they abide till the last hum and flash of the enemy have faded from the tropic horizon. Then they alter their postures all at once, like dead men coming to life, 
they turned their fifty faces upon the general, faces not to be forgotten. Flambeau gave a great jump. Ah, he cried, you don't mean. Yes, said Father Brown in a deep, moving voice. It was an English hand that put the rope round St. Clair's neck. I believe the hand that put the ring on his daughter's finger. They were English hands that dragged him up to the tree of shame, the hands of men that had adored him and followed him to victory. And they were English souls, God pardon and endure us all, who stared at him swinging in that foreign sun on the green gallows of palm, and prayed in their hatred that he might drop off it into hell. As the two topped the ridge, there burst on them the strong scarlet light of a red-curtained English inn. It stood sideways in the road, as if standing aside in the amplitude of hospitality. Its three doors stood open with invitation, and even where they stood they could hear the hum and laughter of humanity, happy for a night. I need not tell you more, said Father Brown. They tried him in the wilderness and destroyed him, and then, for the honor of England and of his daughter, they took an oath to seal up forever the story of the traitor's purse and the assassin's sword blade. Perhaps, heaven help them, they tried to forget it. Let us try to forget it, anyhow. Here is our inn. With all my heart, said Flambeau, and was just striding into the bright, noisy bar when he stepped back and almost fell on the road. Look there, in the devil's name, he cried, and pointed rigidly at the square wooden sign that overhung the road. It showed dimly the crude shape of a saber-hilt and a shortened blade, and was inscribed in false archaic lettering, the sign of the broken sword. Were you not prepared? asked Father Brown gently. He is the god of this country. Half the inns and parks and streets are named after him in his story. I thought we had done with the leper, cried Flambeau, and spat on the road. You will never have done with him in England, said the priest, looking down, while brass is strong and stone abides. His marble statues will erect the souls of proud, innocent boys for centuries. His village tomb will smell of loyalty as of lilies. Millions who never knew him shall love him like a father, this man whom the last few that knew him dealt with like dung. He shall be a saint, and the truth shall never be told of him, because I have made up my mind at last. There is so much good and evil in breaking secrets that I put my conduct to a test. All these newspapers will perish. The anti-Brazil boom is already over. Olivier is already honored everywhere. But I told myself that if anywhere, by name, in metal or marble that will endure like the pyramids, Colonel Clancy, or Captain Keith, or President Olivier, or any innocent man was wrongly blamed, then I would speak. If it were only that St. Clair was wrongly praised, 
I would be silent. And I will. They plunged into the Red Curtain Tavern, which was not only cozy, but even luxurious inside. On a table stood a silver model of the tomb of St. Clair, the silver head bowed, the silver sword broken. On the walls were colored photographs of the same scene, and of the system of wagonettes that took tourists to see it. They sat down on the comfortable padded benches. "'Come, it's cold,' cried Father Brown. "'Let's have some wine or beer.' "'Or brandy,' said Flambeau. End of the Sign of the Broken Sword This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton The Three Tools of Death Both by calling and conviction, Father Brown knew better than most of us that every man is dignified when he is dead. But even he felt a pang of incongruity when he was knocked up at daybreak and told that Sir Aaron Armstrong had been murdered. There was something absurd and unseemly about secret violence in connection with so entirely entertaining and popular a figure. For Sir Aaron Armstrong was entertaining to the point of being comic, and popular in such a manner as to be almost legendary. It was like hearing that Sonny Jim had hanged himself, or that Mr. Pickwick had died in Hanwell. For though Sir Aaron was a philanthropist, and thus dealt with the darker side of our society, he prided himself on dealing with it in the brightest possible style. His political and social speeches were cataracts of anecdotes and loud laughter. His bodily health was of a bursting sort. His ethics were all optimism and he dealt with the drink problem, his favorite topic, with that immortal or even monotonous gaiety which is so often a mark of the prosperous total abstainer. The established story of his conversion was familiar on the more puritanic platforms and pulpits, how he had been, when only a boy, drawn away from Scotch theology to Scotch whiskey, and how he had risen out of both and become, as he modestly put it, what he was. Yet his wide white beard, cherubic face, and sparkling spectacles, at the numberless dinners and congresses where they appeared, made it hard to believe, somehow, that he had ever been anything so morbid as either a dram-drinker or a Calvinist. He was, one felt, 
the most seriously merry of all the sons of men. He had lived on the rural skirt of Hampstead in a handsome house, high but not broad, a modern and prosaic tower. The narrowest of its narrow sides overhung the steep green bank of a railway and was shaken by passing trains. Sir Aaron Armstrong, as he boisterously explained, had no nerves. But if the train had often given a shock to the house, that morning the tables were turned, and it was the house that gave a shock to the train. The engine slowed down and stopped just beyond that point where an angle of the house impinged upon the sharp slope of turf. The arrest of most mechanical things must be slow, but the living cause of this had been very rapid. A man clad completely in black, even, it was remembered, to the dreadful detail of black gloves, appeared on the ridge above the engine and waved his black hands like some sable windmill. This in itself would hardly have stopped even a lingering train. But there came out of him a cry, which was talked of afterwards as something utterly unnatural and new. It was one of those shouts that are horridly distinct even when we cannot hear what is shouted. The word in this case was murder. But the engine driver swears he would have pulled up just the same if he had heard only the dreadful and definite accent and not the word. The train once arrested, the most superficial stare could take in many features of the tragedy. The man in black on the green bank was Sir Aaron Armstrong's manservant, Magnus. The baronet in his optimism had often laughed at the black gloves of this dismal attendant, but no one was likely to laugh at him just now. So soon as an inquirer or two had stepped off the line and across the smoky hedge, they saw, rolled down almost to the bottom of the bank, the body of an old man in a yellow dressing gown with a very vivid scarlet lining. A scrap of rope seemed caught about his leg, entangled presumably in a struggle. There was a smear or so of blood, though very little. But the body was bent or broken into a posture impossible to any living thing. It was Sir Aaron Armstrong. A few more bewildered moments brought out a big, fair-bearded man, whom some travelers could salute as the dead man's secretary, Patrick Royce, once well known in Bohemian society and even famous in the Bohemian arts. In a manner more vague, but even more convincing, he echoed the agony of the servant. By the time the third figure of that household, Alice Armstrong, daughter of the dead man, had come already tottering and wavering into the garden, 
The engine driver had put a stop to his stoppage. The whistle had blown, and the train had panted on to get help from the next station. Father Brown had been thus rapidly summoned at the request of Patrick Royce, the big ex-Bohemian secretary. Royce was an Irishman by birth, and that casual kind of Catholic that never remembers his religion until he is really in a hole. But Royce's request might have been less promptly complied with if one of the official detectives had not been a friend and admirer of the unofficial Flambeau. And it was impossible to be a friend of Flambeau without hearing numberless stories about Father Brown. Hence, while the young detective, whose name was Merton, led the little priest across the fields to the railway, their talk was more confidential than could be expected between two total strangers. As far as I can see, said Mr. Merton candidly, there is no sense to be made of it at all. There is nobody one can suspect. Magnus is a solemn old fool, far too much of a fool to be an assassin. Royce has been the baronet's best friend for years, and his daughter undoubtedly adored him. Besides, it's all too absurd. Who would kill such a cheery old chap as Armstrong? Who could dip his hands into the gore of an after-dinner speaker? It would be like killing Father Christmas. Yes, it was a cheery house, assented Father Brown. It was a cheery house while he was alive. Do you think it will be cheery now he is dead? Merton started a little and regarded his companion with an enlivened eye. Now he is dead? he repeated. Yes, continued the priest stolidly. He was cheerful. But did he communicate his cheerfulness? Frankly, was anyone else cheerful in the house but he? A window in Merton's mind let in that strange light of surprise in which we see for the first time things we have known all along. He had often been to the Armstrongs, on little police jobs of the philanthropist, and, now he came to think of it, it was in itself a depressing house. The rooms were very high and very cold, the decoration mean and provincial. The drafty corridors were lit by electricity that was bleaker than moonlight. And though the old man's scarlet face and silver beard had blazed like a bonfire in each room or passage in turn, it did not leave any warmth behind it. Doubtless, this spectral discomfort in the place was partly due to the very vitality and exuberance of its owner. He needed no stoves or lamps, he would say, but carried his own warmth with him. But when Merton recalled the other inmates, he was compelled to confess that they also were as shadows of their lord. The moody manservant, 
with his monstrous black gloves, was almost a nightmare. Royce, the secretary, was solid enough, a big bowl of a man, in tweeds, with a short beard. But the straw-colored beard was startlingly salted with gray, like the tweeds, and the broad forehead was barred with premature wrinkles. He was good-natured enough also, but it was a sad sort of good-nature, almost a heartbroken sort. He had the general air of being some sort of failure in life. As for Armstrong's daughter, it was almost incredible that she was his daughter. She was so pallid in color and sensitive in outline. She was graceful, but there was a quiver in the very shape of her that was like the lines of an aspen. Merton had sometimes wondered if she had learnt to quail at the crash of the passing trains. "'You see,' said Father Brown, blinking modestly, "'I'm not sure that the Armstrong cheerfulness is so very cheerful for other people.' You say that nobody could kill such a happy old man, but I'm not sure. Ne nos inducas in tentationem. If ever I murdered somebody, he said quite simply, I dare say it might be an optimist. Why? cried Merton, amused. Do you think people dislike cheerfulness? People like frequent laughter answered Father Brown. But I don't think they like a permanent smile. Cheerfulness, without humor, is a very trying thing. They walked some way in silence along the windy, grassy bank by the rail, and just as they came under the far-flung shadow of the tall Armstrong house, Father Brown said suddenly, like a man throwing away a troublesome thought rather than offering it seriously. Of course, drink is neither good nor bad in itself, but I can't help sometimes feeling that men like Armstrong want an occasional glass of wine to sadden them. Merton's official superior, a grizzled and capable detective named Gilder, was standing on the green bank waiting for the coroner, talking to Patrick Royce, whose big shoulders and bristly beard and hair towered above him. This was the more noticeable, because Royce walked always with a sort of powerful stoop, and seemed to be going about his small clerical and domestic duties in a heavy and humbled style, like a buffalo drawing a go-cart. He raised his head with unusual pleasure at the sight of the priest, and took him a few paces apart. Meanwhile, Merton was addressing the older detective respectfully indeed, but not without a certain boyish impatience. "'Well, Mr. Gilder, have you got much further with the mystery?' "'There is no mystery,' replied Gilder as he looked under dreamy eyelids at the rooks. "'Well, there is for me, at any rate,' said Merton, smiling. 
"'It is simple enough, my boy,' observed the senior investigator, stroking his grey pointed beard. Three minutes after you'd gone for Mr. Royce's parson, the whole thing came out. You know that pasty-faced servant in the black gloves who stopped the train? I should know him anywhere. Somehow he rather gave me the creeps. Well, drawled Gilder, when the train had gone on again, that man had gone too. Rather a cool criminal, don't you think? to escape by the very train that went off for the police. "'You're pretty sure, I suppose,' remarked the young man, "'that he really did kill his master?' "'Yes, my son, I'm pretty sure,' replied Gilder dryly, "'for the trifling reason that he has gone off with twenty thousand pounds in papers that were in his master's desk. "'No, the only thing worth calling a difficulty is how he killed him. The skull seems broken in as with some big weapon, but there's no weapon at all lying about, and the murderer would have found it awkward to carry it away, unless the weapon was too small to be noticed. Perhaps the weapon was too big to be noticed, said the priest with an odd little giggle. Gilder looked round at this wild remark, and rather sternly asked Brown what he meant. "'Silly way of putting it, I know,' said Father Brown apologetically. "'Sounds like a fairy tale. "'But poor Armstrong was killed with a giant's club, "'a great green club, too big to be seen, "'and which we call the earth. "'He was broken against this green bank we are standing on. How do you mean? asked the detective quickly. Father Brown turned his moon face up to the narrow facade of the house and blinked hopelessly up. Following his eyes, they saw that right at the top of this otherwise blind back quarter of the building, an attic window stood open. Don't you see? he explained pointing a little awkwardly like a child. He was thrown down from there. Gilder frowningly scrutinized the window, and then he said, Well, it is certainly possible, but I don't see why you are so sure about it. Brown opened his grey eyes wide. Why, he said, there's a bit of rope round the dead man's leg. Don't you see that other bit of rope up there, caught at the corner of the window? At that height, the thing looked like the faintest particle of dust or hair, but the shrewd old investigator was satisfied. You're quite right, sir, he said to Father Brown. That is certainly one to you. Almost as he spoke, a special train with one carriage took the curve of the line on their left, and, stopping, disgorged another group of policemen, in whose midst was the hangdog visage of Magnus, the absconded servant. "'By Jove, they've got him!' cried Gilder, and stepped forward with quite a new alertness. "'Have you got the money?' 
he cried to the first policeman. The man looked him in the face with a rather curious expression, and said, No. Then he added, At least, not here. Which is the inspector, please? asked the man called Magnus. When he spoke, everyone instantly understood how this voice had stopped a train. He was a dull-looking man with flat black hair, a colorless face, and a faint suggestion of the East in the level slits in his eyes and mouth. His blood and name, indeed, had remained dubious ever since Sir Aaron had rescued him from a waitership in a London restaurant, and, as some said, from more infamous things. But his voice was as vivid as his face was dead. Whether through exactitude in a foreign language, or in deference to his master, who had been somewhat deaf, Magnus's tones had a particularly ringing and piercing quality, and the whole group quite jumped when he spoke. I always knew this would happen, he said aloud with brazen blandness. My poor old master made game of me for wearing black, but I always said I should be ready for his funeral. And he made a momentary movement with his two dark-gloved hands. Sergeant, said Inspector Gilder, eyeing the black hands with wrath, aren't you putting the bracelets on this fellow? He looks pretty dangerous. Well, sir, said the sergeant, with the same odd look of wonder, I don't know that we can. What do you mean? asked the other sharply. Haven't you arrested him? A faint scorn widened the slit-like mouth, and the whistle of an approaching train seemed oddly to echo the mockery. We arrested him, replied the sergeant gravely, just as he was coming out of the police station at Highgate, where he had deposited all his master's money in the care of Inspector Robinson. Gilder looked at the manservant in utter amazement. Why on earth did you do that? he asked of Magnus. To keep it safe from the criminal, of course, replied that person placidly. Surely, said Gilder, Sir Aaron's money might have been safely left with Sir Aaron's family. The tale of his sentence was drowned in the roar of the train as it went rocking and clanking, but through all the hell of noises to which that unhappy house was periodically subject, they could hear the syllables of Magnus's answer, in all their bell-like distinctness. I have no reason to feel confidence in Sir Aaron's family. All the motionless men had the ghostly sensation of the presence of some new person, and Merton was scarcely surprised when he looked up and saw the pale face of Armstrong's daughter over Father Brown's shoulder. She was still young and beautiful in a silvery style, but her hair was of so dusty and hueless a brown 
that in some shadows it seemed to have turned totally grey. "'Be careful what you say,' said Royce gruffly. "'You'll frighten Miss Armstrong.' "'I hope so,' said the man with the clear voice. As the woman winced and everyone else wondered, he went on. I am somewhat used to Miss Armstrong's tremors. I have seen her trembling off and on for years. And some said she was shaking with cold, and some she was shaking with fear. But I know she was shaking with hate and wicked anger, fiends that have had their feast this morning. She would have been away by now with her lover and all the money but for me ever since my poor old master prevented her from marrying that tipsy blackguard. Stop, said Gilder, very sternly. We have nothing to do with your family fancies or suspicions. Unless you have some practical evidence, your mere opinions— Oh, I'll give you practical evidence, cut in Magnus, in his hacking accent. You'll have to subpoena me, Mr. Inspector, and I shall have to tell the truth. And the truth is this. An instant after the old man was pitched bleeding out of the window, I ran into the attic and found his daughter swooning on the floor with a red dagger still in her hand. Allow me to hand that also to the proper authorities. He took from his tail pocket a long-hilted knife with a red smear on it, and handed it politely to the sergeant. Then he stood back again, and his slits of eyes almost faded from his face in one fat Chinese sneer. Merton felt an almost bodily sickness at the sight of him, and he muttered to Gilder, Surely you would take Miss Armstrong's word against his. Father Brown suddenly lifted a face so absurdly fresh that it looked somehow as if he had just washed it. Yes, he said, radiating innocence. But is Miss Armstrong's word against his? The girl uttered a startled, singular little cry. Everyone looked at her. Her figure was rigid, as if paralyzed. Only her face, within its frame of faint brown hair, was alive with an appalling surprise. She stood like one, of a sudden, lassoed and throttled. This man, said Mr. Gilder gravely, actually says that you were found grasping a knife, insensible, after the murder. He says the truth, answered Alice. The next fact of which they were conscious was that Patrick Royce strode with his great stooping head into their ring and uttered the singular words, Well, if I've got to go, I'll have a bit of pleasure first. His huge shoulder heaved, and he sent an iron fist smash into Magnus's bland Mongolian visage, laying him on the lawn as flat as a starfish. Two or three of the police instantly put their hands on Royce, but to the rest it seemed as if all reason had broken up and the universe were turning into a brainless harlequinade.
None of that, Mr. Royce, Gilder had called out authoritatively. I shall arrest you for assault. No, you won't, answered the secretary in a voice like an iron gong. You will arrest me for murder. Gilder threw an alarmed glance at the man knocked down. But since that outraged person was already sitting up and wiping a little blood off a substantially uninjured face, he said only shortly, What do you mean? It is quite true, as the fellow says, explained Royce, that Miss Armstrong fainted with the knife in her hand. But she had not snatched the knife to attack her father, but to defend him. To defend him, repeated Gilder gravely. Against whom? Against me, answered the secretary. Alice looked at him with a complex and baffling face. Then she said in a low voice, After it all, I am still glad you are brave. Come upstairs, said Patrick Royce heavily, and I will show you the whole cursed thing. The attic, which was the secretary's private place, and rather a small cell for so large a hermit, had indeed all the vestiges of a violent drama. Near the center of the floor lay a large revolver as if flung away. Nearer to the left was rolled a whiskey bottle, open but not quite empty. The cloth of the little table lay dragged and trampled, and a length of cord, like that found on the corpse, was cast wildly across the window sill. Two vases were smashed on the mantelpiece, and one on the carpet. I was drunk, said Royce, and this simplicity in the prematurely battered man somehow had the pathos of the first sin of a baby. You know all about me, he continued huskily. Everybody knows how my story began, and it may as well end like that, too. I was called a clever man once, and might have been a happy one. Armstrong saved the remains of a brain and body from the taverns, and was always kind to me in his own way, poor fellow. Only he wouldn't let me marry Alice here, and it will always be said that he was right enough. Well, you can form your own conclusions, and you won't want me to go into details. That is my whiskey bottle half emptied in the corner, that is my revolver quite emptied on the carpet. It was the rope from my box that was found on the corpse, and it was from my window the corpse was thrown. You need not set detectives to grub up my tragedy. It is a common enough weed in this world. I give myself to the gallows, and, by God, that is enough. At a sufficiently delicate sign, the police gathered round the large man to lead him away. But their unobtrusiveness was somewhat staggered by the remarkable appearance of Father Brown, who was on his hands and knees on the carpet in the doorway, as if engaged in some kind of undignified prayers. 
being a person utterly insensible to the social figure he cut, he remained in this posture, but turned a bright round face up at the company, presenting the appearance of a quadruped with a very comic human head. I say, he said good-naturedly, this really won't do at all, you know. At the beginning you said we'd found no weapon. But now we're finding too many. There's the knife to stab, and the rope to strangle, and the pistol to shoot. And after all, he broke his neck by falling out of a window. It won't do. It's not economical. And he shook his head at the ground, as a horse does grazing. Inspector Gilder had opened his mouth with serious intentions, but before he could speak, the grotesque figure on the floor had gone on quite volubly. And now three quite impossible things. First, these holes in the carpet, where the six bullets have gone in. Why on earth should anybody fire at the carpet? A drunken man lets fly at his enemy's head, the thing that's grinning at him. He doesn't pick a quarrel with his feet, or lay siege to his slippers. And then there's the rope. And having done with the carpet, the speaker lifted his hands and put them in his pockets, but continued unaffectedly on his knees. In what conceivable intoxication would anybody try to put a rope round a man's neck and finally put it round his leg? Royce, anyhow, was not so drunk as that, or he would be sleeping like a log by now. And, plainest of all, the whiskey bottle. You suggest a dipsomaniac fought for the whiskey bottle, and then, having won, rolled it away in a corner, spilling one half and leaving the other. That is the very last thing a dipsomaniac would do. He scrambled awkwardly to his feet, and said to the self-accused murderer, in tones of limpid penitence, I'm awfully sorry, my dear sir, but your tale is really rubbish. Sir, said Alice Armstrong, in a low tone to the priest, can I speak to you alone for a moment? This request forced the communicative cleric out of the gangway, and before he could speak in the next room, the girl was talking with strange incisiveness. You are a clever man, she said, and you were trying to save Patrick, I know. But it's no use. The core of all this is black, and the more things you find out, the more there will be against the miserable man I love. Why? asked Brown, looking at her steadily. Because, she answered equally steadily, I saw him commit the crime myself. Ah, said the unmoved Brown, and what did he do? I was in this room next to them, she explained. Both doors were closed, but I suddenly heard a voice, such as I had never heard on earth, roaring, Hell, 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 again and again, and then the two doors shook with the first explosion of the revolver. 
thrice again the thing banged before I got the two doors open and found the room full of smoke. But the pistol was smoking in my poor, mad Patrick's hand, and I saw him fire the last murderous volley with my own eyes. Then he leapt on my father, who was clinging in terror to the windowsill, and, grappling, tried to strangle him with the rope, which he threw over his head, but which slipped over his struggling shoulders to his feet. Then it tightened round one leg, and Patrick dragged him along like a maniac. I snatched a knife from the mat, and, rushing between them, managed to cut the rope before I fainted. I see, said Father Brown, with the same wooden civility. Thank you. As the girl collapsed under her memories, the priest passed stiffly into the next room, where he found Gilder and Merton alone with Patrick Royce, who sat in a chair, handcuffed. There he said to the inspector submissively, Might I say a word to the prisoner in your presence? and might he take off those funny cuffs for a minute? He is a very powerful man, said Merton in an undertone. Why do you want them taken off? Why, I thought, replied the priest humbly, that perhaps I might have the very great honor of shaking hands with him. Both detectives stared, and Father Brown added, Won't you tell them about it, sir? The man on the chair shook his tousled head, and the priest turned impatiently. "'Then I will,' he said. "'Private lives are more important than public reputations. I am going to save the living, and let the dead bury their dead.' He went to the fatal window, and blinked out of it as he went on talking. "'I told you that in this case there were too many weapons,' and only one death. I tell you now that they were not weapons, and were not used to cause death. All those grisly tools, the noose, the bloody knife, the exploding pistol, were instruments of a curious mercy. They were not used to kill Sir Aaron, but to save him. To save him? repeated Gilder. And from what? from himself, said Father Brown. He was a suicidal maniac. What? cried Merton in an incredulous tone. And the religion of cheerfulness? It is a cruel religion, said the priest, looking out of the window. Why couldn't they let him weep a little, like his father's before him? His plans stiffened, his views grew cold. Behind that merry mask was the empty mind of an atheist. At last, to keep up his hilarious public level, he fell back on that dram drinking he had abandoned long ago. But there is this horror about alcoholism in a sincere teetotaler, that he pictures and expects that psychological inferno from which he has warned others. It leapt upon poor Armstrong prematurely, and by this morning he was in such a case that he sat here and cried he was in hell, in so crazy a voice that his daughter did not know it, 
he was mad for death, and with the monkey tricks of the mad he had scattered round him death in many shapes, a running noose and his friend's revolver and a knife. Royce entered accidentally and acted in a flash. He flung the knife on the mat behind him, snatched up the revolver, and having no time to unload it, he emptied it, shot after shot, all over the floor. The suicide saw a fourth shape of death, and made a dash for the window. The rescuer did the only thing he could, ran after him with the rope, and tried to tie him hand and foot. Then it was that the unlucky girl ran in, and, misunderstanding the struggle, strove to slash her father free. At first she only slashed poor Royce's knuckles, from which has come all the little blood in this affair. But, of course, you noticed that he left blood, but no wound, on that servant's face? Only before the poor woman swooned, she did hack her father loose, so that he went crashing through that window into eternity. There was a long stillness, slowly broken by the metallic noises of Gilder unlocking the handcuffs of Patrick Royce, to whom he said, I think I should have told the truth, sir. You and the young lady are worth more than Armstrong's obituary notices. Confound Armstrong's notices, cried Royce roughly. Don't you see it was because she mustn't know? Mustn't know what? asked Merton. Why, that she killed her father, you fool, roared the other. He'd have been alive now but for her. It might craze her to know that. No, I don't think it would, remarked Father Brown, as he picked up his hat. I rather think I should tell her. Even the most murderous blunders don't poison life like sins. Anyhow, I think you may both be the happier now. I've got to go back to the deaf school. As he went out onto the gusty grass, an acquaintance from Highgate stopped him and said, The coroner has arrived. The inquiry is just going to begin. I've got to get back to the deaf school, said Father Brown. I'm sorry I can't stop for the inquiry. End of the Three Tools of Death End of G. K. Chesterton's The Innocence of Father Brown <laughs>